All right, we have a special guest today in the Chief Cast. We have our very own Dr. Condos. Welcome, Dr. Condos. We're very excited to talk about heart sounds on this Valentine's Day week. <laughs> and uh, the first question, based on the case that Don't we make them too difficult. <laughs> Don't make okay. them too difficult, Alfredo. <laughs> I'll try. The first question is based on the case that we just discussed with our chiefs. So one of the big questions that we had uh, that is somewhat confusing, so this might be a hard one, uh, is how would you best differentiate the murmurs between AS and PS? So very good question. And in most cases, again, if you think about mostly the adult patients we see, they're going to have aortic stenosis if you look at it. But insofar as we can identify AS and PS, the first thing I would do is focus on your carotid. So by palpating the carotid in aortic stenosis, you'd have a decreased volume and a delayed upstroke, whereas with pulmonic stenosis, the carotid volume would expectedly be normal. Secondly, when you auscultate the patient, the loudness of the murmur for aortic stenosis is going to be in the second right intercostal space, whereas with pulmonic stenosis, it's going to be the second left intercostal space. Another thing that's really important to differentiate those, if you listen to the second heart sound. Mm -hmm. So in pulmonic stenosis, think about what the pressure is distal in the pulmonary artery in the lung. It's going to be low. Okay. Therefore, it's going to take a longer time for the valve to close. So P2 is going to be very wide and P2 will be actually very soft. Hmm. Whereas in aortic stenosis, you would get either a single split um, and a very soft second heart sound with a narrow split. Awesome. Okay. That explains some of these differences. Do you have an ability to show us some of these sounds? I just to have that ability. <laughs> so if you listen to this murmur, it's definitely a systolic murmur, and it's a late peaking murmur, crescendo, decrescendo. Let me play that again for you. I see it. And we're hearing this loudest in the second right intercostal space would be aortic stenosis. The murmur in pulmonic stenosis would sound similar. Got the it. only thing you would hear it louder in the aortic, in the pulmonic area, the second left intercostal Perfect. space. So that's a great way to also differentiate them on your physical exam. Not just those very subtle differences that you described, but also, of course, uh, where to listen to right. them. Correct. Um, which is, of course, very important. Um, there are other very high yield sounds and hard sounds. Why is that important in 2017? We can we can just uh, go on Cerner, uh, type echo, and we have like six orders for echoes that we can do. So let me answer that question by asking you a couple questions. So did you know, Alfredo, that most heart failure, about 25%, is totally asymptomatic? So by feeling the carotid pulse, by listening for a third heart sound, you'd identify that that person has LV dysfunction and you could start treatment. Did you know that patients who present with group one pulmonary hypertension, most have physical exam findings, an elevated JVP, an increased P2 component. Most of those individuals are young women. Most physicians examining them think they're just malingering and don't have symptoms. And I can give you 20 other conditions which actually can be picked up on the physical exam and you wouldn't know that you would need to order an echo. Did you know that most valve disease presents as moderate to severe valve disease and the patients might be totally symptomatic? If you didn't examine the patient, you wouldn't know that you would need to get an echo to follow up. And that makes sense when you look at the classification of heart failure. When you move away from the classic NYHA classification towards the newer A, B, C, and D classification, 
some of those first letters are really asymptomatic individuals. Right, right. and prevention. Right. There you go. Exactly right. Beautiful. Exactly right. So what important heart sounds would we want to uh, talk to our residents about? So I think importantly, when a resident examines a patient, there's a couple simple rules in terms of when you think a murmur is an innocent murmur, which I generally hate classifying murmurs as innocent because the opposite is guilty, and we never talk about murmurs <laughs> yeah, being guilty. Some pretty severe guilty murmurs right. out there. But most innocent murmurs are kind of called flow murmurs. So any murmur that's greater than a grade two, so just remember murmurs are graded one through six, four, five, and six all have a thrill or a palpable vibration. Mm -hmm. um, with a grade four murmur, you have a thrill, grade five murmur, thrill, but you could hear it with a stethoscope partially on the chest wall, grade six murmur, thrill, and the stethoscope is about a millimeter off the chest wall and you can hear it. Grade one murmur is pretty hard to hear mm -hmm. after you're listening, listening, and then you hear it. Grade two is a little bit louder than a grade one, and a grade three is a little bit louder than a grade two, but no thrill that you'd pick up in a grade four murmur. Got it. So importantly, any murmur that's louder than a grade two needs an echo for evaluation. Any murmur that's a grade two with a patient having symptoms, dyspnea and exertion, shortness of breath, any other cardiovascular symptom needs to get an echo for further evaluation. Solid. And, you know, on the board exam, they might have to wear some fancy headphones and listen to some heart sounds. So uh, do you have some heart sounds that we could uh, take a quick look at? Uh, sure. What are the most high-yield ones that you would want our residents to know for their boards? So I'm going to ask the residents now. I'm going to tell them that the stethoscope is going to be at the apex of the left ventricle, and the heart rate is going to be about 60. What's your diagnosis? Hmm. So in this patient, the diagnosis is mitral regurgitation. The characteristic findings are plateau systolic murmur, not crescendo, decrescendo that we just heard in aortic stenosis, and we're listening over the apex of the left ventricle. In murmurology or the study of murmurs, thinking about where you hear the murmur the loudest, think that's what's causing the murmur. So if you're over the mitral area, most likely the systolic murmur is gonna be related to mitral regurgitation. Let me, have your let me have our residents listen to this murmur, and here we're at the lower left sternal border. All right. So here, what we're hearing is a very classical diastolic murmur. You're hearing lup-da-ch, and it's a decrescendo diastolic murmur. The quality of the murmur is what we call a blowing murmur. And remember what we mean by quality. Quality is that you can play middle C on a guitar and it'll sound different if you play middle C on a piano. So what we're talking about quality is this blowing kind of a murmur, not the frequency. And this is very characteristic of aortic insufficiency that you would actually hear in a patient. Let's listen to this patient. We're now at the apex of the left ventricle. Oh, that's a multi kind of tonal one. Right. So this again is a diastolic murmur because we're hearing something like lup de zh, lup de zh, lup de zh. Very different quality than the diastolic murmur we heard before, which was high pitch. And this happens to be the murmur of mitral stenosis. Remember, diastolic murmurs can be, caused because, can be caused for a number of reasons. One, there might be stenosis at the level of the atrioventricular valve. 
there might be there might be stenosis at the um, atrioventricular valve, there might be um, regurgitation at the aortic or the pulmonic valve, or there might be increased flow from the left atrium to the left ventricle related to, for example, let's say mitral regurgitation. So one other turbulent flow or finding I'd like the residents to listen to is this, and tell me what you think this is. Whoa, that's turbulent. So this is an example of a continuous murmur, and continuous murmurs are defined as murmurs that begin in systole and go through diastole. They don't have to go all the way through diastole. This would be an example of a patient with a patent ductus arteriosus. To listen to what a continuous murmur sounds like, listen over an AV fistula, mm -hmm. and in those patients you can get uh, the yes. continuous murmur. So we have a couple of other high-yield sounds. Um, Dr. Condos, what are we listening to? So first, I'm going to ask you what we're listening to, too. <laughs> okay. So let's listen um, to this patient. Hearing some echo at the end there. Correct. So what we're listening to is we're hearing S1, S2, and a third heart sound. Lup-da-da, lup-da-da. And the third heart sound that you can hear is a very low pitch sound. Listen to it again. I see that, yeah, I hear that. And what conditions would you see that in? So interestingly enough, the S3 can be physiological or it could be pathological. And the pathological S3 is, is associated with LV dysfunction or left ventricular heart failure. Very interesting, that's why you have to feel where the LV impulse is because by putting your bell of the stethoscope over that area will ensure you're here in S3. Let me let you listen to this sound. I, feel, I think I'm hearing a kind of reverberation at the beginning. Correct. So what we're hearing here, the cadence that we're listening to is ta-da-ta, and that low pitch sound that we're hearing before is an S4. Listen once more. There you go. And what conditions would you find that in? So in an S4, you can hear that in somebody with hypertensive heart disease or a stiff ventricle. Typical patient that comes to see me in the heart center will say, Dr. Condos, my blood pressure is always elevated um, and I don't have hypertension, it's white coat hypertension. But if you hear an S4 on physical exam, they have evidence of hypertensive heart disease and need to be treated. The last sound I want you to listen to is this patient. Wow, that's quite the beatbox. Yeah, so this sounds like and you're hearing a high-pitched sound between S1 and S2, and that's an example of a click of mitral valve prolapse. Importantly in this patient is where provocative maneuvers are helpful. As you stand this patient up because you decrease venous return to the left ventricle, the click and the murmur will occur earlier. Mm -hmm. As you squat the patient, the click and murmur will occur later. Let's listen to the click one more time. There it is. Da, da, da. Got it. Very cool. And great. I think that was an amazing review. Thank you so much, Dr. Condos. Uh, a couple of final tips on your examination. I, I remember when we were in the CCU, uh, when I was a PGY2 and PGY1, your exam started literally when we walked into the door. You would look at the patient, you would pause, you would sit next to him. 
tell me a little bit about that. So I think in the physical exam, you have to take every clue both that the patient gives you. And importantly, for example, even seeing that a patient has a narrow pulse pressure indicating a decreased stroke volume, in some people that might be normal. But in other patients, that could indicate that you have decreased left ventricular function, obstruction to blood going out the aorta, you can have a massive pulmonary embolus. So by just looking at the blood pressure and the pulse pressure itself gives you an idea of what's going on. The next thing you're doing is you're taking the history. Once you take that history, it guides you to certain diagnoses that can be then um, adjudicated by your physical exam. And then by using your physical exam, you can really nail down what the diagnosis is. I always tell residents that the echocardiogram should confirm your clinical suspicion. Rarely will the echocardiogram make a diagnosis that you're thinking about. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Condos, for that great summary. We talked a little bit about AS and PS and their differences. Uh, we talked a little bit about high yield uh, sounds. Keep in mind that these sounds are important for both your bedside. You might have to listen to this in your, in your actual board exam. Um, I wanted to conclude with two last questions. So I think we talked a little bit about ASD. We talked a lot about uh, valvular issues. And of course, um, angiography has been helpful in diagnosing some of these um, some of these cardiac structural issues. Um, we always like to kind of inject a little bit of, of history in the chief cast. So Dr. Kondos, tell me a little bit about Dr. Soames and how, how he really contributed to the history of medicine and cardiology. So in my former life, I was an interventional invasive cardiologist doing cardiac caths, doing angioplasties, doing valvuloplasties. So Mason Soans was a cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic. And at that time when they were doing cardiac caths in the late mid 50s, they actually felt it was an anathema for the coronary artery catheter that we inject dye through to go directly into a coronary artery. Cath labs were set up to open the chest in case they needed to operate on the patient because their heart stopped you know, beating. So one day the catheter actually fell into the coronary artery and lo and behold the patient didn't die. So they got the idea to develop the Soans catheter, which you could actually engage the coronary, right or left coronary artery, and do selective coronary arteriography. Before, arteriography was done with the catheter at the ostium of the left or right coronary artery, which was suboptimal imaging. Then later on in the late 1960s, early 1970s, a guy by the name of Mel Judkins at Loma Linda University actually developed the Judkins catheters, which are preformed catheters, which fit directly into the left and right coronary artery, making arteriography easier. That's super fascinating. So again, we, we've been using angiography, ventriculographies to diagnose these conditions in children and adults, and even before that in animals, really. And we, we just stumbled upon doing it on the coronaries and the rest is history. After creating the gold standard for diagnosing CAD, we then also uh, proceeded to do interventional uh, uh, cardiology uh, with Grunzig doing the PTCA techniques in the 1970s and Correct. the rest is history. Correct. So Correct. Super cool. Where do you think the future is going? So the future is actually here, and the future is, in, cardiology is always a moving target. So one of the things that the residents all know about is TAVR, 
uh, transaortic valve replacement where patients don't have to go in and have an open heart procedure, but they can have an aortic valve placed via catheter-based technology. Generally, this is done with the surgeon and the cardiologist in tandem, um, but a lot of patients that are not candidates for surgery and the indications will even progress to patients who are low-risk candidates will get aortic valves replaced. One thing, Alfredo, that I think is very important is how do you become good at your physical exam? Mm Because a physical exam is the hallmark of everything that we're doing. And it's been estimated in the cardiac exam literature that you have to listen to a heart sound at least four or 500 times before you're even good at identifying that heart sound. It's kind of like um, Yo-Yo Ma plays a cello three hours a day. Mm -hmm. Michael Jordan would do two to 300 free throws before every basketball game. But it wasn't just standing there shooting three throws, free throws or playing the cello. It was thinking about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And the way, I can exam- the way I can give you an example is if I saw a patient's hemoglobin was 17 and I looked at their conjunctiva and I said, boy, their conjunctiva are pale, there's no way their conjunctiva are pale. So what you have to do is go back and examine the patient's conjunctiva so that you can reset your range of normal. And that's how you become good. Correlating your echo findings with your physical exam findings is really the way to improve your physical exam skills in cardiology. At the end of the day, your history and physical is your best test. Yep. So thank you so much, Dr. Condos. We really appreciate your time, your commitment to teaching, and for always supporting our residents. It is Valentine's Day week, so... Uh, My favorite day of the year, not because it's the heart. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Chiefs and I shared our favorite love songs. What is your favorite love song? Don't ask. I don't even know. (laughs) Don't ask. Okay. Um, It's probably the S3. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Well, actually, I do hear heart sounds in any music that's played. So I have a lecture where I use house music, rock, and I hear S3s, S4s, opening snaps, etc. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Condos. My pleasure. Bye-bye.